0: Welcome into a very special edition of Fish Bites. Of course, my name is Danny Martinez. Now, the reason that it's a special edition is because Glenn Geffner, your radio voice of the Marlins, is going to be joining me today. Glenn, number one, is fantastic at what he does. If you ever listen to the Marlins radio broadcast, I don't have to tell you this. You already know this. Number two, he is someone that I have been following since his time back in the early 2000 with the Red Sox. So I have a big, you know, goofy and dorky smile on my face, knowing that I'm gonna be able to chat some baseball with Glenn. We're going to talk a little bit about his upbringing. He's a Miami native. We're going to talk about his career prior to being with the Marlins. And then we're going to transition and talk a little Marlins baseball, what he likes about the current plan, what he is seeing in the future, what, what the vibe uh, he gets from the players and whether you know, they're buying into what's being built here. Glenn also decided to send a thread on Twitter this last week. And as soon as I saw it, I loved it because I knew that there was going to be a lot of feedback brought with that tweet to my surprise it it was incredibly positive 96% plus I would say were positive towards the feedback with some disagreeing with what he said now what he said was basically laying out the reasons that he believes in this organization moving forward why he believes that the South Florida area should start coming to games more often supporting the organization supporting the players and starting to see with their own eyes the improvements at the stadium, starting to see with their own eyes the improvement to the overall organizational talent, even at the big league level, starting to see the young pieces in what is only year two of a rebuild, but getting in early while this plan is coming into place. I love that Glenn sent that out, and I, I just, again, am so honored that he decided to join us today. So before and without me babbling on anymore. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Joining us now is a Miami native, someone who you will undoubtedly recognize as soon as they speak. of the radio voices of your Miami Marlins, and honestly, someone that I've been following since his days with the Red Sox back in the early 2000s, so I hope you forgive me if I'm a little starstruck in introducing Glenn Geffner. Glenn, thank you for coming on.
1: Danny, happy to do it. It's great to talk with you.
0: Absolutely. You know, I joked right before we started recording that I have a big smile on my face. It's still there, so if you can envision me with my microphone and my big smile, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, Well, we'll
1: see if you're still smiling
0: in a few minutes,
1: (laughs) but once you get into this here,
0: I have a feeling that I'm going to still be spot. I have a feeling. Uh, I'd actually like to start off with speaking about you, really. Uh, by now, most Marlon fans know exactly who you are and how great you are at what you do. But I'm guessing there are some that may not know about your time prior to coming to Miami. So I'd like to give you that time. Talk a little bit about yourself, You know what's important to you and your career before coming back home, per se.
1: Yeah, well, as you point out, I did come back home and I came to the Marlins in 2008. I grew up down here uh, in South Dade, went to high school at Palmetto, uh, then left to go over to college in 1986. Uh, when I grew up down here, we did have Major League Baseball. We had spring training baseball, the Orioles at Miami Stadium, the Yankees up in Fort Lauderdale, and we had University of Miami Baseball. And I practically lived out at Mark Light, went to as many Canes games every year as I could, and went to baseball camp there, Ron Frazier's camp for years and years, and I ended up actually coaching at Ron Fraser's camp when I was in high school. Uh, did some internships at the Miami Herald on my way through high school and college, uh, and then once I went away to Northwestern, I thought I was probably pretty much done with uh, Florida. Uh, spent four great years in Evanston, and uh, then began my career in baseball, working in AAA with the Rochester Red Wings, who at that time were the Baltimore Orioles' AAA affiliate. Uh, started out as an unpaid intern, making mascot appearances at twenty-five dollars a pop to help pay hmm. my rent. I uh, got on the air eventually, I was doing all the team's public relations work, uh, became a, a fill-in broadcaster, the number two broadcaster, then the lead broadcaster. I'd started radio at Northwestern for four years, uh, broadcast Northwestern football, basketball and baseball, did talk shows, things like that, and that's really when my love for broadcasting began, and uh, had the chance to work full-time in AAA, and then wound up uh, going to the big leagues, first with the San Diego Padres for six seasons had the chance to work with Bruce Bochy and Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman and Ricky Henderson and some people like that in those years. Uh, then on to the Red Sox, where I spent five years. And uh, I always say I was there for the absolute best five years imaginable because mm-hmm. my first year ended miserably in 2003. That was my indoctrination to what being a Red Sox was all about, losing Game 7 of the ALCS to the Yankees on the Aaron Boone home run on Tim Wakefield next in year innings. Right. Uh, but then 2004, it can't get better than what the Red Sox did in four coming back from down in the alcs to beat the yankees to win the pennant and then sweeping the cardinals for the first world series win in 86 years and i was there through 2007 when they won their second world series uh at least in most of our lifetimes uh they've won Mm -hmm. one more since but uh at the end of that 2007 season i had the chance to come back home and uh a lot of people wondered why the heck would you leave the red Sox having just won a second world series but this is home for me and uh You know, I followed this franchise closely from day one in 1993. I literally remember sitting in the back conference room in our office, the old ballpark in Rochester, New York, watching Charlie Huff throw the first pitch of the first game back in 1993. (laughs) And I remember where I was watching the 1997 World Series Game 7 at a close friend of our family's house uh, in San Diego at that point. Uh, And so when I had the chance to come back home, it was an opportunity that I just couldn't pass up at that point in my life, especially Uh, with a wife and at that point a couple of kids. Uh, We've had a third since. But uh, it just seemed like a great place to raise our family and to be home and really more than anything to want to be here at a point where I really thought the Marlins could kind of take that next step and establish themselves as a a team that perennially could be competitive. Uh, There was a lot of hope for a new ballpark at that point. It wasn't that long before we learned that the ballpark would get built. Uh, So for a lot of reasons, it was just a great opportunity to come home continue to do what I love in an area where I knew it'd be uh, a great opportunity to raise my family.
0: That's amazing. I, before we get to the fish, actually, I have to ask you this now, because the Red Sox are known for treating their employees really well. Did Were you able to get a championship ring?
1: I've got two of them, yeah. I've got uh, 2004 and 2007, for sure. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. All right, yeah. so you, Don't wear them. Don't really wear them. You know, it, when I was in Boston, I'd wear them Uh, with the 04 one for special occasions, opening day and the banquets and things like that. Uh, I actually received the 07 ring after I moved down here in 2008. Uh, And so I don't really wear them. I don't take appearances sometimes when I know uh, young students might get excited seeing something like that. But Mm -hmm. it's funny, it's so long ago now, as big a deal as 2004 was, when I go speak at a school now, a lot of the times, you know, kids weren't even born in 2004. And they have no idea about the curse of the Bambino and what some of that stuff meant.
0: That's funny. Yeah, that's, that's what you're there for, then. You get to educate them. We try. We try. So, like you mentioned, you come back home in 2008, right? I think it's fair to say that since then, yeah, you've seen a lot. You've, you've seen a lot of changes. There's been some ups. There's been some very low lows. Uh, I'm not necessarily one to dive too much into the past or previous regimes or previous mistakes or what hasn't worked. So, instead, I'll ask you this. As we look at the current status of the organization right from this draft to the vastly improved farm system the fan-centered initiatives even the big league club what most excites you about the direction of the marlins moving forward
1: i think what excites me is they have a plan and they will absolutely not budge from the execution of that plan they know exactly where they want to get and how they want to get there and there won't be any getting sidetracked along the way. You know, there were times in the past where it seemed like this franchise was headed in the right direction, but then all of a sudden, uh, you bring in the wrong free agent for the wrong reason, or, or right. you make the wrong trade for the wrong reason, and things just don't work out. Uh, these guys are committed 1 million percent to executing their plan, and, and they laid it out on day one. You know, I, I know they said there were hard decisions to be made, and people now know what that means, and people didn't like a lot of that stuff. But they've done everything they've done with a purpose, and they continue to just be very patient and let it all play out. Uh, You know, and even, obviously, I've gotten a lot of attention in recent days for some of my tweets and talking about people coming out and supporting the team. Even in that regard, uh, you know, they're very patient. They understand it's going to take some time for fans to really see it all coming together. Uh, On the field, it's going to take some time for it all to come together and, and be able to what they want to do here but that's what excites me they really do have a plan and you look around baseball uh and you look at other teams as examples of franchises that have gone through similar periods and just look at the standings when you wake up today four of the six teams that are in first place in their divisions right now four of the six all but the yankees the dodgers who have all the money in the world four of the six have gone through similar programs Mm -hmm. losing 90 plus games 100 plus games not that long ago and getting things turned around dramatically. Atlanta, the Cubs, the Twins, the Astros. Uh, you had got a Houston team that lost 100-plus games three years in a row, lost 111 games one year, and then a few years later is winning the World Series. Uh, everybody knows what the Cubs have been through. The Braves went from three straight 90-loss seasons to winning the division last year and looking really good again this year. Uh, so it, it doesn't mean that everybody who tries this is going to be successful because you got big money teams, you got other teams kind of doing the same sort of thing. You don't operate in a vacuum, but they have a plan. And, and to me, this really is the one and only chance for this franchise on and off the field. I think they're doing everything the right way. They've immersed themselves in the community, the ballpark enhancements, the reduced ticket prices, reduced concessions prices. They're reaching out to people. And the whole point of my series of tweets Sunday night was, you know what, it's kind of, people kind of extend that hand back a little bit and rather than be so bogged down in what's happened over the last 25 years of this franchise, it's time at some point to say, you know what, maybe these people deserve the benefit of the doubt. Let's not convict them of a crime before they've committed a crime. Let's give these guys a chance to do their thing. They're doing what they told us they were going to do, and now we're beginning to see the fruits. And we're only in the second or third inning of this. thing. We've got a long way to go, Mm -hmm. and there'll probably be more losses than wins in the short term for sure, but... These guys have a plan, and they're carrying it out every single day. You see it in the trade. You see it in the way they handle the draft. You see it in the way they've handled players at the minor league level, who gets promoted, who doesn't get promoted, who they stick with in the big leagues, who they don't stick with in the big leagues. Uh, Every move they make is made with a purpose, and they're not going to deviate from this plan.
0: Yeah, 100% with you. You know, and for anyone that's listened to this podcast over the last few months, you really, Glenn, just said a bunch of the things that I've been trying to say. And that's why when you first sent out that thread of tweets, I was one of the first ones to quote you. And I said that this is exactly what we've been echoing and that it was a beautiful thing for you to come out and say that. Because what I see is, again, correct, the plan. Right. There is finally a plan here, and it seems like they're executing it very well. You said we're in the second inning of this thing. And even while being in the second inning, look at the pitching staff and then not even the major league pitching staff. Look also to the minor league pitching staff and what they have built. Yeah, I've also seen an ownership group that is responsive. I I was at that town hall that uh, Derek Jeter had the first year that he was here. And it seems, you know, there was a lot of ridiculous things that were said there, not from him, but from fans, um, some things that were a little bit more understandable. The the two things that I spoke about was, are we going to go into the international market and how we're going to be responsive with what, um, you know, the colors, our, our, our changes in the stadium, things that might help the fan experience. And a year and a half into this, those are both things that have occurred, right? They're heavy in the international market. And they're heavy into the Dimelo campaign and and the colors and the stadium upgrades. It's beautiful to see that change and then be responsive. Uh, Something that's always interesting to me is if you got into Miami, individuals will say, well, this is a winner's market, right? The, The Heat have to win. The Dolphins have to win. The Canes have to win. Do you buy into the theory that once the Marlins are really a stable, competitive winner, the city of Miami will come back?
1: You know what? I want to buy into that theory, Danny, but i got to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question because we've never seen that happen.
0: Right. So we don't
1: have anything to really intelligently base that answer on. I hope that's the case, uh, but we just don't know. It, it's a great ballpark, obviously. We hear complaints from people who live in Palm Beach County don't want to drive that far south. People in Broward say it takes too long. I make the drive from Broward County every day. Granted, it's my job and I get paid to do it, but I make that drive right. literally every single day. Uh, And and somehow I go on, as I've said to a few people uh, on social media in recent days, you know, we all have things that we enjoy doing and we drive an hour or 90 minutes or, heaven forbid, two hours a couple of times a year to go to an amusement park or to go to a restaurant that we love or to go to a theater that we enjoy or something like that. Uh, So I hope that at some point people buy in. Uh, You know, I think it's it's up to fans. It's up to the media to Mm -hmm. maybe... Do what you've done and and take a more honest look at what's truly going on here rather than constantly falling back on the old, tired cliches. It's so easy to talk about what happened in 1997 and 98. And or the excuses. 2003 excuses. Or, or what you know, happened three owners ago or two owners ago or whatever. But it, at some point, you've got to move on. And, and you to, these are different people. They didn't commit these crimes. It's so funny. You also have to be honest. And, and this is part of my frustration. Uh, you know, there were people who were so upset they traded Miguel Cabrera. They didn't come out to watch Miguel Cabrera play when Miggy was here. Right. There are people who said all the recent trades, but all those players who were dealt away played in front of the lowest attendance in baseball year after year after year, and also never even finished at five hundred. Uh, and there's no doubt there was great talent traded away, but all the people who say, I don't come to games because they traded all these players, didn't come when these players were here. All these people who say, "Well, I'd come to games if they would lock up their young core of talent," didn't come when Stanton got the biggest contract in sports history. Didn't come when Yelich got his extension. You know, didn't come uh, really when they they brought all the free agency in in 2012. Year they opened the ballpark. There was that little initial bump only because of the new ballpark, but that faded in a hurry. Uh, So you know, at some point, look, if you don't love the Marlins, if you don't love baseball, that's fine. But that's on you. That's not Wayne Heisinger's fault. That's not Jeffrey Laurie's fault. It's not the fault of being in a football stadium where it's too hot and rainy because now you got a ballpark with a roof. Uh, you know, at some point, stop pointing fingers everywhere else and just say, you know what, it's just not my thing. I'd rather go to a football game or a basketball game. That's cool. I'm good with that. But uh, at some point, people who really step back and take a look at what's going on here, I think and I hope will realize that, you know, there's, they're in the foundational stage of building something really cool here. And in the meantime, you go to the ballpark tonight. They might win. They might lose. We'll see. But it's a great place to watch a game. The food is great. You can get a $10 ticket. The concessions are $3 and $5 in many cases. Go out have some fun. Take your family to a ball game. You know, uh, go out and see some of the great names in this sport when they come to town, some of the exciting teams in the sport when they come to town. Just have some fun. Uh, you know, people complain about the drive. No one complained about going to the Orange Bowl. All those yes. years, the Dolphins and Canes. People don't complain about going to the AAA to watch the Heat. Uh, my point all along has been, I'm not saying everybody's got to buy season tickets, but two or three times a year, if enough people down here just started going to two or three games a year, you'd create a culture where the Marlins really are part of the fabric of this community. When I worked in San Diego, and I see it in San Diego every time I go back there, the Padres haven't had a lot of success. But the Padres truly are part of the fabric of San Diego. And whether you're a baseball fan or not, you go to a few Padres games a year because it's something that everybody who lives in San Diego does. And the weather's great, and you get a micro-brew, and you have a great time, and Padres might win, Padres might lose, but you're San Diegan, and you support the hometown team. And believe me, they haven't had near the success the Marlins have had over Mm -hmm. the two years that the Marlins have won a series here. Uh, and there are other markets that are like that as well. So you hope at some point people can just kind of get over the history. I understand it's tortured and painful, but say, you know, what, we've got new people in place here now. They're doing a lot of things right. It's going to take some time. We all acknowledge that. But you know what? Let's check out the new ballpark enhancements. Let's check out this new team, some of these young arms that we're hearing about. You know, show some support and have some fun, and uh, hopefully you can say you were there in the earliest stages. before this team gets really good over the next few years.
0: Yeah, that you didn't come in later on when it was the easy thing to do, but that you yeah, saw we'll what was happening. We'll take the bandwagon fans too, but in the meantime, it yeah. would be nice to have some people hopping on early. Yeah, and, and I do think I've always empathized. Maybe it's the clinical psychology part of me. I've always empathized with the person um, that says, you know, they're the scorn lover, right? They're the one that says, well, I've, I've been hurt before, and the first time I got over it, the second time I got over it. And they don't seem to understand that there's a difference here. And I think that's the problem. The problem is that the individual and we're not talking about the individual that isn't like baseball. We're talking about the the real person who has actually made a decision to turn its back on this organization. Right. That individual, it seems like they're not even aware of the changes anymore that they have allowed. And we won't say names, but previous uh, mistakes To then turn their love away from baseball. And what I'm starting to see, even in my own family, even in my own circle of peers, is those that take the first step. Right. That first step is the hardest when it comes to this uh, to go to the stadium to, you know, dive into the farm system. You don't even have to really dive into the, dive into the top five starting staff that the Marlins are currently fielding every day or the core pieces and the Andersons and the Alfaro's and we'll see what Cooper comes to be and and Ramirez. If they take that first step and they go to this beautiful park, they come back. You know, they come back Mm -hmm. because it's a good experience. It's an exciting experience what do you say to the person that still hasn't taken that first step? And you gave me a lot of good examples already. But I wonder, for the fan that's looking from the outside in and can tell me, because I've heard it a million times, Danny, I understand the farm system. Danny, I understand that they're trying. Is there something that you see within the organization where you just believe it this time? Is it the fruits? Is it the actions? Is it the words? What is it for you where you can really say, listen, this is going to be the, the hot ticket in five years, in three years. It should be a hot ticket now let 's see where it goes
1: well, I've watched it now for about eighteen months or so, and I've made this point a couple of times in recent days when people have asked me about the threat of tweets I sent out, and people somebody called me a shill on social media, oh, you're just Derek Jeter's guy trying to kiss up to Derek Jeter. you know i didn't send these tweets out the day that Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter bought the team. i didn't send the tweets out at any point in the first season where they owned the team or in the off season leading up to this year or in spring training of this year. But I really, being around this every single day as I have been, as I'm lucky to be, I really see a corner being turned. I really see that on the field, off the field, in the culture of the organization. Uh, and that's why I said, you know what, it's time now. It's time to say something. Uh, and I didn't know who would listen or what the response would be. But I just felt like, you know what, it's time now. Things are starting to change here. I'm sick of the old cliches. Let it go. Uh, you got to honestly take a look at what's happening here because you really are seeing it. And, uh, you know, I hope other people will also. And, and it is a matter of just taking that first step. Like you say, we might need a, a segment on the pregame for every night, Danny, with our clinical psychologist to help walk people through this. <laughs> Absolutely. If, if steps toward, uh, toward recovery or, or toward whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's things are changing. They really are. I see it every day. And, and like I said, I wasn't saying this a year and a half ago because I didn't know for sure. But I really believe it now. I truly do. Uh, I had no reason to doubt anybody on day one. But like everybody else, you kind of want to sit back and watch and see things begin to play out. And and now you really see the difference at the big league level, at the minor league level, uh, in the organization. I talk about the culture change. The culture in the major league clubhouse is completely different. You've got 25 guys in there who want to be here, who want to play their butts off for nine innings every night. As we saw with the rally in the ninth inning, we came up short last night against the Nationals. Mm-hmm. As we saw the night before, when Miggy got thrown out in the eighth inning, cause he was called out on strikes, and his feeling was, "You know what? This umpire is trying to get this game over with because he thinks at six one in the eighth, it's over. I don't think it's over. I'm fighting till the twenty seventh out." You love that stuff, and it was the and, kindest.
0: And, it was the kindest argument I've ever seen from yeah, lip I, reading. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, that's Miggy yeah, Rowe, but, of course. I mean, I mean,
1: We made the comment on the broadcast, you don't normally see Miguel Rojas react like that. I don't know that we've ever seen Miguel Rojas, but it it tells you how passionate he is and how strongly he feels about this. And so when I'm around these players every day and I'm around these games every single day, I see this stuff. And you want other people to see it as well. Uh, But at some point, and again, as as a clinical psychologist, you'll understand this better than anybody, at some point people have to make the decision, I want to let myself see it. And there are many who are beginning to make that decision. And there are many who just absolutely refuse to. And at some point, what can you do?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'll hit on something that you said about the players really quickly. You know, this is a fan base who one of their biggest things is always, oh, well, the players always leave or they get sent out? Right. I'm not going to compare this uh, current build that they're in to the what I would categorize as fire sales rebuilds of the previous regimes. We could go and speak ad nauseum about how Stan had a no trade clause. We had no leverage in that one. Yelich, whether we're okay with him demanding a trade or not, demanded a trade. The same with Ryabuta, at least with the, what the rumors are. We could speak about all of that. But then you go to FanFest this year and you talk to Amante Harrison. Or, you know, even on this own podcast, we have a sister podcast, Earning Their Stripes, where we bring minor league players and we speak to them. If you go back and you listen to those episodes, Isan Diaz is on fire to get here, but he mentions Miami. It's not just about the big leagues. It's about what we're building here. The first time that we had Monte Harrison on, he gave us a five-minute, it sounded like a a locker room halftime speech. Okay, on what we're building here. And that was when they were in the middle of their 10 and 31. He said, you know, it's tough to look up there right now, but I'm telling you we're coming and we're bringing championships to Miami. All these players seem to be on fire. And I'm not a big, uh, quote unquote, we're going to change the culture kind of guy, even though there is some element to that in a clubhouse. But that's kind of what we're seeing here. We're seeing players that want to be here, that want to be in Miami. And like you said, Mickey Rowe is a beautiful example of that. So, what if we're down sixth in the ninth, I, in the eighth? I want to be able to have every strike a strike, every ball a ball, because we're going to come back and get this. Is, is that just what you're seeing? You're seeing a bit of a culture change as well. People, not just inside the organization, but the players are buying into the plan?
1: No question. 1000%. Uh, you see it in the big league clubhouse every day. And again, I come back to the way this team has fought and clawed. And actually, just looking at some numbers this morning I mean, for tonight's game, this team's played much better in very close games, one- and two-run games, than it has in blowout-type games. And they find a way to win when they hang around, uh, they, they like those kinds of games, being in those positions. And then you go down to the minor league level, and you talk about Isan Diaz, and Monte Harris, guys like that. I look back at the captain's camp they've held now for the last couple of years prior to spring training where they bring the top prospects in the organization in, and they teach them about leadership and what it means to work in this kind of a culture, a winning culture, how you succeed on the field, off the field, how you immerse yourself in the community, how you're a good citizen away from the ballpark, what it means to wear this uniform, to be a major leaguer, the responsibilities that entails. Uh, So I think these young players, before they even get to the big leagues, are learning these vital lessons so that when they get here, they're going to be a step ahead. And, uh, yeah, you've got some better players in this clubhouse this year who have great resumes and great pedigrees. Curtis Granderson knows what it takes. Neil Walker knows what it takes. Miguel Rojas is a really unique guy. You know, somebody who's had to scratch and claw for every bat he's ever gotten in the big leagues. And you're so happy to see him getting a chance to play every day. And I thought it was really touching to hear Don Mattingly say if he had to pick one player to represent the Marlins to the All-Star mm-hmm. game, Mickey would be the guy because of what he represents, what he means to this team, the fact that he's out there every day, the fact that he's a spectacular defender who's been swinging the bat really well since the middle part of May. Uh, but what he means to this team and the fire and the leadership by example, the vocal leadership that he brings. Uh, you know, Sergio Romo is another guy like that, a veteran brought in this year who's been part of three World Series championship teams, is on the mound for the final out of a World Series. This is a guy who's been on the biggest stage, he's seen it all. And they're such great role models for the younger players in this clubhouse, you know, the other young players who are going to join them eventually. Right now, we've got 25 players or got twenty-five players in the active roster. Five of the 25 have made their major league debuts this year. Mm-hmm. So they're able to glean knowledge and wisdom from some of these veteran guys. And I, I think it's a really nice situation to put people in position to have success in the long term. Uh, it, it is a cultural change, and that's important. And it really starts with Don Mattingly and his coaching staff. Donnie's been great through this entire process. You know, people think of Mattingly as a New York Yankee, as the manager of the Dodgers, big market teams, huge dollar teams. But for me, watching Donnie during his time here, and especially over the last two years, he's the perfect manager for this group of guys. He loves to teach. He loves to impart wisdom. He loves to be a role model for these guys. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to watch him do his thing, and that's been a huge part of this whole culture shift as well.
0: I wonder if there's a short list of your most memorable calls. I'm sure it's not the first time someone has asked you this, and I'm sure it's somewhat like choosing between your children. Uh, But is there anything that sticks out to you, a a season, a call, a game that would make your short list um, of dearest moments? Well, it's
1: not a dear moment, but it's the first moment that comes to mind every single time anybody asks this question or or I think back on things like this. Uh, That first came back after Jose passed away. Uh, and I'll get choked up just talking about it right now. Uh, That is, I'm literally getting goosebumps as I think about this night. Uh, That's a night that nobody who was in that ballpark or was watching on TV or listening to the radio probably will ever forget. Uh, And and that, you know, and I I broadcast world series in Boston and and was a part of a lot of cool things over the years and 3000 hits and things like that. But, that's a night that stands above all others that I will never forget, and it's a night you wish you were never a part of. Uh, But that game just, for me, crystallizes what baseball means, what sports means, uh, Mm -hmm. in bringing people together, uh, a shared bond, uh, in reminding yourself that, you know, these guys in the field who we all think are robots are human beings, and and they have emotions, and to see the, the Mets, respond the way they did to the Marlins players that night. Uh to think back, you know, D Gordon hitting that home run to start the game, Justin Board hitting a triple, the Marlins winning. You know, a lot of things that happened that night. Uh that is the night above all others. And you know, I've been in Clubhouse getting sprayed with champagne after the World Series ends. But that night above all others stands out. Uh, and again, it's of all these nights I could mention, the one I wish would have never happened, Right, But uh, that, that night meant so much. Uh, and that's the first one I always think of when we talk about something like this.
0: Yeah, I, I think that you hit it right on the head that it is, it is the night that we can't forget, but we wish we would have never known of. Um, and the fact, actually, I wasn't even able to watch the game that day. So I had to hear it from you. Um, or I, well, I had to hear it from the broadcast. And the reality is, <sighs> the reality is, is that that's a tough job. And that the way that it was done was handled correctly. And that the response from everyone, whether it was the broadcast group or whether it was like you said, the the Mets or whether it was the other teams, uh, the other players made it such a night that I, I agree. That has to be the response that I would get from you. Um, yeah, I can't it's, even it's, imagine it's something tough. else.
1: It's tough to call a game when you're crying. Yeah. You know, Dave and I were both crying for uh, especially the early part of that game. Uh, you know, that whole few days and that whole last week of the season where we had to play out the string after that Mm -hmm. uh, was a time that nobody will ever forget and I think when you sit back a decade from now and look at uh, the path this franchise has taken, I don't think you'll be able to tell the story of the good and the bad without looking at what happened to Jose and how that ended and what he could have been and what he might have meant and what his passing meant to people in this family uh, because it is a family uh, and not just the guys in uniform and people around it every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And they're quite honestly, a lot of the guys who were in that clubhouse at that time, you hate to say they're better off being somewhere else, but it was like, it could never ever be the same for that group with the way things ended for Jose and, and what that meant. And literally every time you walk into the clubhouse, you think about it and you're around guys, you think about it. Uh, It it was like everything changed. And it's easy to talk about what changed on the field with Jose's passing, but emotionally uh, everything changed. And I, it really altered people's lives and their approach to life uh, and probably in some ways, relationships and things like that. Um, and, And in a way, you know, I'm not sure how healthy it would have been, and I'm not trying to justify anything, but I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how healthy it would have been to keep all those guys together uh, because it just could never be the same when just your heart and soul is ripped out the way it was with what happened to Jose.
0: Yeah, I I believe actually Yelich said something to that extent, that in in an interview later, um, that season and that tragedy changed everything for him personally and for the Marlins. Okay. Marcelo
1: Zuna is a guy who has spoken about that D Gordon is a guy who's talked about that. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's one of those things that uh, changed so many things. And, so, and it obviously destroyed three families right. more than anything related to baseball. But, uh, yeah, that's it's one of those things that you just never, ever are able to leave behind. And there's literally, to this day, not a day. I don't think about Jose and think about what happened and what might have been. There was that unbelievable Jason Stark piece on the athletic this past Mm -hmm. off season uh, about what might've been with Jose. And for me, it's one of the great baseball discussions, great. What ifs in baseball history, Jose might go down as the single greatest. What if in baseball history, you know, Roberto Clemente died tragically, but he had 3000 hits under his belt and was right at the end of his career. What might he have done in this game? Because what he had done in such a short time already, uh, you know, and with his personality, and what he meant to this community, and with his history, obviously, his whole life story, uh, and being a Cuban in this city, uh, for me, it could be easily argued as the greatest what-if in the history of the sport.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, Glenn, I'm sorry to get you off on a on a note that is definitely very somber for a lot of us. I told
1: you I'd wipe the smile off your face. I, I, you I, day, I know, right? but see,
0: you, <laughs> you got it with the one thing that could. You got it with the one thing that could. I, I really, really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you coming on, okay? You are amazing at what you do.
1: Thank you for doing what you do. And for the people who listen, I hope you know how much your support of this franchise is appreciated. It has not always historically been the easiest team to support, but uh, what you guys do... You know, there are faces I see at the ballpark every single night and Mm -hmm. certainly names that we know, fans who literally attend 81 home games a year and travel to road games a lot. Uh, For those of you who have hung with the Marlins over the years, I can't appreciate you guys any more than I do. And as I said to somebody on social media and all the back and forth I've had recently, you know, it's for people like you guys that I'm really hoping things get really good sooner rather than later because you guys deserve it. And though hopefully at one point soon, be a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. But I know I won't forget the people who have been here through everything. And what you guys do is a great service to the Marlins fans out there across South Florida and around the country. And uh, I'm happy to do this anytime, Danny. Let's do part two, part three sometime. Call me anytime, and uh, happy to talk more as as the story evolves and as things change.
0: Absolutely, Glenn. Thank you again. Okay.
1: Great stuff. Thank you, Danny. I'll-